1: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap for January 16th, 2020. The If You Want Her Out edition. Who's the her in that sentence? A vague her. Could be Elizabeth Warren. It could be the ambassador to Ukraine. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, chortling, snorting in New York no not New York he's in Florida is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes are you where are you you're in Florida right John hello I'm in Florida I'm at the Pointer Institute uh, in um, St. Petersburg that is great and not chortling or snortling is Emily Bazelon of Yale and the New York Times snortling
2: snortling I like that verb what would that be snort (laughs) chuckle I
3: don't know I guess it would be uh, both a snort and a chuckle
1: uh, combined in one. And listeners, you can't see this, but Emily has a sparkly top <laughs> and it's so it's so exciting. It oh is like God. we're doing we're doing the show at a. At a gala or something. It, I think she's not wearing I have to
2: post a picture what? of this boring t shirt just to take it the way it is. It's very sparkly. It's like a dark gray t shirt with a few flowery glitter things on it. They're like, not even. How long have you I
3: been like a that. member of the Ice Capades? <laughs> um, you know, I understand I even, what David means,
2: though, because it's true that in the video, it looks really exciting. Like I can't, it is even, see it. I can't video, even see it. I can't
1: even see it. Okay. On today's Gabfest, Fest, <laughs> on today's Gab Fest, sparkles all around. The impeachment trial begins with the arrival of a remarkable new witness and his documentation, Lev Parnas. We will talk about that then. Sanders versus Warren, the spat that helps no one but possibly Joe Biden and possibly Donald Trump. And then Bill Barr puts the screws to Apple to crack the security on a phone belonging to someone accused of terrorism, a murderer accused of terrorism. Plus we will have cocktail chatter. The House has chosen managers and sent the articles of impeachment to the Senate, where a trial will begin in earnest next week. Although I guess technically, maybe it's already begun. At the moment, it is unclear what the Republican caucus that controls the Senate is going to allow to happen during the trial, whether or not they will allow witnesses. What has come to light this week is a rather chilling set of documents from Lev Parnas, the Rudy Giuliani sidekick associated associated with Giuliani's significant efforts in Ukraine to to uh, get an investigation started of the Biden family, and also indicted for a set of campaign finance misdeeds that are kind of adjacent to what we're talking about with impeachment. So, Emily, what was what is it that that Parnas has done to shake up this uh, impeachment situation? If anything, maybe I mean it's there's a lot of information that's come out. Does it does it fundamentally uh, alter any of the narrative?
2: Well, if you believe everything Parnas says, he's providing more evidence that Trump was following every step of what Giuliani was doing in Ukraine in trying to get uh, the Ukrainians to cough up information about Joe and Hunter Biden. So there's that. I mean, to me, the most explosive revelation was this idea that people were tracking the movements of the U.S. ambassador at the time, Maria Ivanovich, in this way that comes across as super creepy in the text. Now, this guy... Robert Hyde, uh, candidate for Congress in my own home state of Connecticut, he was the one who was doing the tracking. Of course, now he's trying to say, oh, it was all in jest. This is like – we should do a list of the times people say they're joking about something that seems creepy and deadly serious. This is just like such a motif of our time. But I would like to see that investigated because it just seems really unnerving. And it shouldn't be OK to have private actors sort of on behalf of the president who knows going around tracking the movements of an ambassador.
1: Your point about ingest is such a good one, Emily. We've seen that, obviously, with the right and the far right, the alt-right, the kind of white nationalist right, use that jestiness as a way of of floating ideas which are unacceptable, which they, which they which they can back off of. They can say, oh, we're... We're just kidding around, but then become actually and the, these ideas actually enter the the bloodstream of the whole country because then they 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 do mean it. They do mean it, but they give themselves the out of oh, it's comic. Um, and it's not just that he was tracking her. I mean, he presumably he's talking some trash and he maybe he doesn't even you know he doesn't have the the capacity he says he does, but he's talking about having her killed potentially the way the language is set up it's it's ambiguous it does suggest something more than just oh i'm tracking you it's i'm going to take care of it i'm going to take care of her i'm going to you want her out well,
3: and and we should remember and connect this with the fact that the president said on his phone call with the president of ukraine that some things were going to happen to her uh, which draw which creates the unproved but creates Certainly the question raises the question of did he know what was going on? I mean, what's um, what's extraordinary again about this if you step back is that basically US foreign policy was was outsourced to like a crew of jamokes and hangabouts. I mean, um, there's
1: left yeah, but Parnas, don't use those words. Guy, don't worry that don't worry that, that jamokes makes it sound funny. It's not funny. It's not funny, John. Well, I it's think like, John meant
2: like people who had no business no, being for in sure. the middle
3: of this. For
1: sure, yes, yes I know exactly.
3: Yeah. And therefore, when you hand over brain surgery to your lawn doctor, it's not—it's not what you do. That's the point, point. and that you—you you have somebody like, um, and you know, and Marie uh, Yovanovitch, the Ukraine ambassador. And then all the others who have been a part of the investigation in the House who've come forward, these people who've dedicated their careers to the service of the United States, replaced with, you know, Rudy Giuliani on what John Bolton called a drug deal. You've got Lev Parnas, who's snapping Instagram pictures all over the place and and talking about how he's on a James Bond mission. Then you've got Robert Hyde, who is a former landscaper who has a... Crazy checkered past of confrontation and just total randomness. Who then also seemed to be kind of a, a rent seeker uh, with an office on Pennsylvania Avenue in the in the Trump administration. That those are the people to whom U.S. foreign policy was handed, and it wasn't even U.S. foreign policy. It was this effort to get uh and one of the things that the house intelligence committee released this week were handwritten notes from the ritz carlton in vienna that parnas had written about what he was supposedly up to we don't know i don't think we know the time frame of when he wrote these notes but the top note is basically to get the president of ukraine to announce an investigation into biden crucial word announce because the point it is alleged and there's plenty of evidence of this the point was not to get an ed- investigation underway, the president of Ukraine promised the president that he would actually do that on their phone call, but the point was to get it announced so that it would have this political damage um, to Biden. And and providing one more piece of evidence in that story, uh, I think, is also a, a part of what Parnas provided this week in the, in the materials that were handed over, and we should probably explain why they were handed over. Emily, you may know the details of this better than I do.
2: Well, Parnas is under federal indictment and he's trying to make a deal with the government. I mean, it seems like it's pretty yeah. much that simple, right? Or is there more to no, it? No,
3: but the the House didn't get the stuff until this week because DOJ was holding on to it. Um, so this this came out this week because he petitioned to get his iPad and his other materials back and that's why uh, that's why the House now has it. They didn't they haven't had it since the beginning.
1: I, I want to make a couple of quick points on this. First of all, it is, uh, I think, remarkable and unusual that Parnas is deciding he wants to make a deal with the, the side that is investigating the president, even though those are federal prosecutors who work for the president. And that's a interesting, bold bet that he's making. Most of the people who have been put, been squeezed in this investigation, like a Manafort, say, have basically decided, I'm going to Keep my mouth shut. Largely, Michael Flynn. We see Michael Flynn backing off from anything, any cooperation with federal prosecutors because they they don't want to get on the bad side of President Trump. Well, and this is the Michael Cohen Par- play that partners, yes. is, right? Yeah, it's Michael go Cohen public. isn't. Yeah, yeah. Michael Trump's- Cohen's in prison. Michael Cohen's in prison, though. You know, yes. I mean, I'm not sure this is the bet I would make if I were one of them. I might say I'm going to shut up and count on count on Trump protecting me because he's got a lot of incentive to. But the other point I want to make, like using these terms like that, you know, that he's a there is this kind of fourth rate hackishness to all these people. But their behavior is mob behavior. This is mobster behavior. It's it's extortion. It's threats. It's tracking. It's like it's not that these are just bad diplomats. These are people who are behaving like criminals in a country, in an environment. The American diplomatic environment is not you're not supposed to behave like a criminal. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, like, behave by a certain set of rules. And the the fact that they are behaving like criminals, I find very scary. Anyway, just back to Parnas quickly. I don't know
3: that, that he could that he could rely on the president because the president has said, "I don't know who this guy is." So maybe he read that and thought, um, "I can't rely on on uh, you know a friendly um, hand up from the president if this goes south."
2: I mean, isn't there another possibility for what they were doing with Jovanovich, which is that There have been various moments at which it seems like part of the scheme is to make some money, to use the corruption, to to make Ukraine more corrupt, to to cash in. And Yovanovitch was in the way of that. And there's a way in which some of these recent communications read as if the quid pro quo or another quid pro quo was to trade dirt on the Bidens for getting rid of Yovanovitch. And that seems like a plausible uh, interpretation of what we're seeing
1: definitely i think there's a whole set of people who the president has his own interests which are not particularly I, mean, I think his interests are normally financially corrupt but in this case his interests are not really financially corrupt but then there's all these people and this is where like the rick perry stuff the, the all the stuff about the that uh, board in ukraine like energy board that people are trying to get on uh, it does have to do with with people who are trying to buck rake in ukraine emily i want to uh, ask you a question about whether this in any way changes the nature of the trial because this is all stuff at the second or third degree to president trump giuliani does say i'm acting with president trump's knowledge and consent that is a line in these partners documents but trump is not part of any of these conversations directly so is this even going to come up in the impeachment trial and does it does it affect the narrative of what the impeachment trial is going to have.
2: I think it puts more pressure on Republicans to allow the Senate to call witnesses. And I think it's no more second or third order than a lot of the testimony that allowed Democrats in the House to connect the dots and implicate Trump in this pressure campaign or shakeout scheme or whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, Parnas is talking about Giuliani going off, calling Trump, coming back, reporting back the content of the phone call. Like, he is one more witness who is one circle away from the president himself. And there is just a lot of damning evidence if you connect the dots. And this is like another piece of the puzzle, which certainly – if, the House had ha- if, if Parnas had had access to these documents during the House investigation, they would have called him. So that suggests the Senate sh- could and should also call him if they want to really get to the bottom of this, which, of course, is not Mitch McConnell's interest. And so I assume they will not call him. I mean, Susan Collins made this kind of—maybe she just didn't know what was going on yesterday, but she said, well, the Dem- if the Democrats—if this was important, they should have called him. And then when faced with, like, well, we— didn't know that he didn't have the document. She said, "Well, that's your fault for not investigating properly."
1: John, where do you think we stand on the process that the Senate impeachment trial is going to uh, use? Do do people know what it is? Uh, it will. our witnesses likely, unlikely? Well, they haven't
3: determined that. There's some move among some senators to hear some witnesses. There's some gamesmanship going on uh, in which uh, I believe it was Senator Cruz who suggested, well, then let's uh, offer a situation where each side can call witnesses. So if you want to call John Bolton, we'll call Hunter Biden. Um, And so that, I think, is still all being worked out. But it's I think the the start on Tuesday, uh, I believe, is locked in. And then We know from previous impeachments that senators have to sit tight. In other words, they have to stay there. They can't look at their devices. They can only bring in reading material that's relevant to the case. If they want to pose questions, they do it through the chief justice. One of the things that will be, it seems to me, actually quite – when I talked to a senator about this months ago, uh, the senator said – who was there for the Clinton impeachment – Said the biggest thing that uh, colleagues were concerned about was the fact they'd have to sit there without connection to the rest of the world and for a protracted period of time. For anybody in a in a attention shredded world, just to sit still um, is going to be just difficult on its own. Um, and it also is going to be interesting because this will be um, you can't throw up gorilla dust. I mean, you have to sit and the pr- this is a slowing down of a process that has at various times been purposefully quickened by various people, often the the president, in order to kind of take attention off of the thing that's being discussed in the moment. Everything in the way this is designed will counteract that or work against that. Uh, So that'll be interesting. Of course, there'll be people who will weigh in and say, oh, this is so boring. But I want to, there are a couple of things that are interesting to me that, first of all, there are no handwritten notes from Lev Parnas testifying to the president's deep-seated concern about corruption in Ukraine. Um, (laughs) And so remember, that's that's the argument for why he was so concerned about Ukraine. And so even though Lev Parnas is not in the first circle um, it's a it's more evidence that the, that the story being used to explain the president's behavior has no foundation either in his personal inclinations or in the fact pattern. Secondly, the reason the people in the first circle aren't talking is because the president isn't letting them, with the exception of John Bolton, which gets us to the question of whether McConnell will let him uh, go forward. I also wonder whether, Emily, you have some thoughts about Giuliani and his letter, which was a part of the Parnas documents, saying that he was acting on behalf of the president was very clear to say he was acting in a private capacity. What's interesting, of course, is that he was acting in private capacity to get the president to launch an investigation or announce the launching of an investigation. So the topic of everything Giuliani was doing in a private capacity then became the topic, the conversation the president held in a public capacity, which is what this whole thing was about, which is whether he's doing things for his private good using his public powers. But I wonder for you, Emily, whether his insistence in that letter that he was acting as his private lawyer says anything specific to you.
2: Well, I think that Giuliani was trying to create some veneer of, like, attorney-client privilege and other protections you have if you're a lawyer on behalf of a client. And he knew he didn't have an official government role, so this was the way to go about getting that. But it does create exactly the impression, and not just impression, the reality of, like, the sloshing between these two different guises of, you know, Trump, personal benefit, Trump, president of the United States, supposedly looking out for our national security interests.
1: Emily. Where do you stand now, a week after we had this conversation, on whether Democrats should or should not want witnesses in this trial? I understand the precedent is for witnesses. All impeachment trials have had them in some form, either live or deposed. Do you think that Democrats uh, should think that witnesses will help the case, independent of whether they think like that the history demands that witnesses be called?
2: Huh. Interesting. I have I feel clear on like history demands, which I feel like, yes, call the witnesses. Uh, I, I think it's important when you so I'm going to answer that, even though you asked me, like, will it help the case? I think that the the test for the witnesses should be the same as at any trial. Is it relevant to the question at hand? So for me, the issue with calling Hunter Biden is. Are you just calling Hunter Biden to put someone else on trial? Because that's not the way it's supposed to work. And that seems like it's the Republicans' aim. In terms of whether it will help the case or not, I think John Bolton is the total wild card. I feel like for the reasons we talked about last week, we have no idea what he's really going to say. And for his book sale personal aims reasons, it seems unlikely that he is just going to be some hero who comes through for the Democrats. So I think that's, like, a hot potato. And, uh, it, you know, if they were sure of what John Bolton would say, wouldn't they just, like, open a hearing tomorrow in the House and have him talk there?
1: Uh, he might not show up for that.
2: True. But. but, like, why not? I mean, if they really wanted to put pressure on him, isn't that, like, a perfectly acceptable way to do it?
1: Um, yeah. John, you and I both covered the Clinton impeachment trial in 1998. You, like, really covered it. I kind of— I kind of bogusly covered it, but you really did cover it. You covered the heck out of that trial. Uh, We learned today that the Senate is going to place major new restrictions on press access during the trial. It's going to be harder to get in and out of the Senate chamber. The reporters who want to talk to senators are going to be pinned up. They will not be able to follow senators around the Capitol the way they usually are able to follow senators. And you mark my words, this is going to bleed into new rules generally about press behavior and access in the Capitol after this trial. I predict, but. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't have any of this for the Clinton impeachment trial. And honestly, that Clinton impeachment trial did kind of have a circus like circus like atmosphere. It was it was I'm not sure it was super edifying the way it was covered, Um, but maybe that was because of the subject matter. Do you think this these restrictions on the press are going to significantly affect how people perceive it, how the how the the trial is seen in the world or not really?
3: Um, I don't know. It depends. I mean, you know, they they, they say that the, these rules are required and necessary because of what happened during the Kavanaugh confirmation and the confrontations in the hallway and the um, which were both uh, senators say actually scary and also politically scary because Jeff Flake was confronted uh, in an elevator and, um, you know, in a way that, uh, Really put the question to him about his position and what Christine Blasey Ford had um, had testified to. So they're trying to cocoon themselves. What will the and, and of course there's I have some sympathy for that, which is that it, it was a bit of a circus back for Clinton. Um, although the right, in my view, the right kind of circus. I mean, not a circus by today's standards. There's real benefit for. Um, patient uh, hallway conversations with senators when these things are going on um, but that isn't what you'd get what you'd get is you'd get massive scrums in which snatches of hallway conversation c- could basically lead the news and and consume social media um, and if I believe what I was saying earlier which is there are benefits to making everybody sit slowly and and be focused about what's at stake here both the specific evidence but but then also the larger question is whether the entire operation of the irregular channel of U.S. foreign policy um, was itself dangerous and is uh, emblematic of a of a disordered presidency, and that that is something to to have a kind of up or down vote on. Um, then that needs to be discussed and thought through in patient ways. So if we if this is a serious business, I, I, I'm anything that makes it makes everybody focus on the serious business at hand is probably is probably a good idea i have one quick question for emily about witnesses does can can the chief justice rule on germaneness if if let's imagine they have this swap situation and then republicans want to call hunter biden could somebody object and say that's not germane and then would that be the chief justice's call or does it does it all get decided by the senate majority
2: the chief justice could make a ruling in such an instance, and then a Senate majority could vote to overrule him. And one would imagine that given that, Chief Justice Roberts is going to try really hard not to make rulings, because what's the point?
1: <laughs> um, all right, last point on this, which I'll phrase as a question to Emily, although really, it's just my own observation. I'm very disappointed that the Democrats did not appoint Justin Amash, Amash I'm never sure how to pronounce his name, as a manager. So he is the one former Republican now who has come out in favor, voted for impeachment in the House. He is very, very conservative. He has nothing in common at all with the Democrats. Um, but he, you know, believes for for quite good and conservative reasons that President Trump has committed impeachable offenses. He's a smart guy, and he was not named one of the House managers, which I feel like is a is a bummer. It's a mistake that it's it's instead it's just all Democrats and. It it does make it seem partisan. Any thoughts on that, Emily?
2: I agree. I think that was the better move in terms of high-mindedness. I imagine from a kind of real politic point of view, there was no way Nancy Pelosi was going to give one of those coveted spots to someone who's not in her caucus. John, what do you think?
3: I think you're right. And also, d- she wants control, such as she can exercise it over the narrative, and he's— um, You know, on their side in some ways, but as David said, uh, maybe not in others. And also he's um, there's talk of him maybe even launching a presidential campaign. And he's an independent actor, uh, which can just muddy the if you're if you're thinking about this from the Democratic leaders perspective, it just muddies the news cycle. If you've got one of your impeachment managers
1: zigging when you want everybody to be zagging. Slate Plus members. You get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcast. Uh, you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus sign up and become a member today. We're going to talk about the politics of Megxit. We have not discussed the British royal family on this podcast for many a long year. Finally, finally, you're going to get the royal content that you long deserve. If you are a Slate plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. Democrats held their final debate before the Iowa caucus, which will take place in early February, that leaves about 3 weeks of debatelessness, much of which will be dominated by the impeachment trial. The debate itself was pretty quiet, and it was massively overshadowed by the progressive family squabble that erupted this last week between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders about a conversation they had in December 2018. John, what was what was their fight? About what was the squabble? How did it, where did it come from? How did it start?
2: <laughs> Lucky you getting to outline yeah. this one. Yeah.
1: In 2018,
3: the two of them met together to talk about their joint ambitions to run for president. Um, in the course of that conversation, Elizabeth Warren uh, says that Bernie Sanders said that a woman can't be elected president. It's... Not exactly, uh, he said she said, because the there there are other people who anonymously testified to Sanders having said this. Uh, it was brought up in the debate. Sanders said he didn't say it. Warren said he did. It, it then kind of moved on from there, regrettably. It, it, and I'll explain why I say regrettably, maybe later. but and then after the debate, Elizabeth Warren, this this respect, up on a CNN microphone, they were hosting the debate. Warren said, essentially, you accused me of lying. Sanders said, let's not do this here. You accused me of lying. And then that kind of uh, ended it there. And there's been various press releases. There was the context for this is that that the Sanders people in various places have been pushing on Warren a little bit more at a kind of low level, talking points on the doorstep when you're trying to convince Iowa voters. Kind of way, Bernie Sanders has made a big thing about not attacking other candidates. He's known Elizabeth Warren for 30 years, so they're actual friends. And the big point here, of course, is um, uh, is this basement fight in the in the progressive clubhouse going to undermine the overall goal, uh, which for progressives is is uh, destroying the what they call the corporate wing of the
1: Democratic Party. And uh, that all still remains to be seen. Emily, there's this one telling statistic you see cited, and it's, there are different surveys around this, which is that an overwhelming majority of Democratic and independent voters say they will vote for a woman for president. In fact, they already have proven that they voted for Hillary Clinton overwhelmingly. But only a minority... Of them say they believe their neighbors feel that same enthusiasm. Um, there should be a term, maybe that term exists for this kind of prejudice by proxy or this kind of anticipatory prejudice or second degree, second degree sexism. But how are we supposed to think about that, that, that this belief that one's own neighbors are more prejudiced and, and, and therefore you make a strategic decision to not support a candidate because you believe other people will not support that candidate?
2: Yeah, I feel like this is so – there's so many strands of this at this particular moment. So one important thing to say is that when women run for other offices like Congress, they win at the same rate as men at this point in history. So we do have lots of evidence that women can win. And I think that Warren's best turn on the debate stage was when she pointed that out about herself and Amy Klobuchar. This question of whether in 2020 going up against Donald Trump after the defeat of Hillary Clinton, people are not going to be hesitant to vote for a woman, that's like a really tricky question. It's, I think there are a lot of women who worry that latent sexism could damage a female candidate. At the same time, just talking about it is creating a kind of perceived weakness, especially at a moment in which what Democrats care most about is electability. So there's just this like kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Like let's imagine the best case scenario for this dinner that Bernie and Warren had you could imagine and and Bernie said this that he said look you know Trump is going to use every weapon he can and with a woman he's going to use sexism and And maybe Bernie made that seem like a problem, was adamant about that in a way that was frustrating to Warren, someone who her whole life has exceeded expectations, has just kind of rolled up her sleeves, gone ahead and did whatever it was she wanted to do and didn't like put her female identity forward, Um, didn't deny it, but also didn't lead with it. They're not having any kind of, like, nuanced conversation about that now. Now they're, like, accusing each other of calling each other liars, which is just not a word that is in the interest of Democrats to be throwing around right now. Like, I just think it diminishes both of them. I worry that this, like, real conversation about, you know, the potential for sexism to infect the election, like, do—given that Clinton— not in popular vote count, but in electoral college terms, lost the election to Trump, you know, are people going to worry a little bit more than they would have otherwise? And does that – is that a real issue? Like, that seems like a perfectly fine conversation to have, except you can't, if you start talking about it too much publicly, then you make it true. And I think that's part of why Bernie was backing so far off of it on the debate stage in a way that actually I found irritating because it was like he sort of went too far. I feel irritated with both of them. Uh,
3: uh, so many questions to ask. What I want to know is what we're actually talking about when we talk about this exchange. What is Elizabeth Warren, in other words... Is this a question about honesty? Is it a question about whether Bernie Sanders would be a sufficient advocate for women as president? Is separate and apart from everything you raised, Emily? What is the? That's one of the things I would have loved it to have been examined in the course of the actual debate which is you know ask elizabeth warren do you think based on your conversation with bernie sanders that he has some view about women that will somehow uh, make him a uh, worse advocate for their interests as president than you otherwise would have thought or than you would be or something along those I lines because totally i want to know what, you. Exa-
2: like what's at stake and how could you really think that uh, about bernie like really
3: Well, exactly. And that would have kind of gotten to the heart of this. Also, honesty is a perfectly important um, question when it comes to presidents. I tend to have a a more um, elastic view of honesty and its role in the job, but leaving that aside. However, I think some perspective is probably worth rolling in, which is... We all, I am certain I can say without fear of contradiction, have been in conversations where we remember something differently than the other person. Right. Um, and so to put the weight of the world on um, and a highly fraught conversation, because you can imagine it was fraught because they both want to be president and, uh, and they're friends. And and also, as you both teed up, this is an interesting question about the country. And it's not just about men and women. It's about basically men and women in seven states against a president who's really unpredictable and plays on identity at, at a kind of root level. And so thinking this through, uh, some people pen- penalize you for even asking the questions you were, Emily, even raising this. Um, but thinking it through, is, it seems to me, is, is in the interests of, of the, both the specific parties and the Democratic Party.
1: Do you think that this dispute, does it benefit any of the candidates? Is, is Biden sitting there Rubbing his hands gleefully, rubbing his bald pate excitedly.
2: Well, it's great for Donald Trump. I mean, both because it's a distraction and because now it's like everybody calls everybody a liar.
1: Excellent.
3: And
2: I think it helps Biden. Yeah. I mean, marginally, I think it does. I don't think it's helping either Bernie or Warren. I mean, I guess to your point about honesty, John, I just find it (laughs) like disappointing. I don't really think that either Warren or Bernie think the other one is – to be distrusted on some deeper level and it just seems like in any other con- situation you would give each other the benefit of the doubt right like 100%. no there's no tape of this conversation she heard uh, more doubt than bernie thinks he expressed now they're both in these like uh, you know political boxes they've created where warren's saying like look Klobuchar and I, Amy and I are the ones with the winning record and Biden saying like it's preposterous to question whether a woman could be elected in 2020. It's not preposterous to question that.
3: It seems to me that if if you're Elizabeth Warren and you know this is going to come up or you're Bernie Sanders and you know it's going to come up, that it provides you a moment on the – you're at the center of the spotlight. Everybody's paying attention for whatever good or bad reasons. And you have a chance to say – exactly what you said Emily which is basically look I know what Bernie's heart is and despite this dispute I know that he cares about women but here's the thing when you don't have health insurance it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman who's going to bring you health insurance when you have to when you can go to college and not have crippling debt for the rest of your life it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman who can in other words use the moment in the sunlight the moment when everybody's looking to then soar to 30,000 feet and make the articulate case for your campaign and then show since this is a contest of who can beat Donald Trump in a general election, show that you have the skill to articulate the progressive values that everybody cares about who follows you and other Democrats who are worried about whether you're going to be able to run into general election, show them you have all this amazing talent and skill. And basically, it was this thing that's kind of dribbled out and theater in politics is way over uh, emphasized. but this was a moment which called for it and I was struck that basically no one... Um, had the tools to
1: milk it for for what it was worth in a that's purely a really political context. John, that's a that is an excellent point. And I actually brings me back to the the one thing that gives me pause about Warren, who I think has generally been a really interesting and 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 theatrically excellent campaigner, and she's kind of engaged people and gotten great crowds and she's done things that are visually exciting. But at, the, at several big moments in this campaign, she has really done things which make you think, ah, you really botched it here, Elizabeth, with the uh, DNA test, number one, with the Medicare for all, which I understand was a risk that she took. But, man, she she really, I think, put a pin in her campaign balloon with that one. And now here where there was an opportunity, I'm not sure it's an opportunity she saw it. I don't know that it's clear that she leaked this in order to get the story out. Um, but whatever it is, she did not handle it in this spectacular way. And you're, I, w- and just to, to pile on to that, I find the wanness of this campaign, which is so important, bizarre, and in particular, the wanness and quietness of the Biden campaign. I've, have you, I can't even remember a frontrunner presidential campaign that has been this uninteresting and this bad in my lifetime. It's such a bad, boring campaign from Biden. And yet, what does it matter? Apparently he's still leading. Huh. The use
3: of the word Juan there was so perfect. I'm, I'm, I just want everyone to reflect on that. Um, uh, I'm barging in here, Emily, just because I think the the I'd like to recommend as just a piece of smart, really smart analysis, Ezra Klein's piece about Elizabeth Warren. Which
1: we're here, here brothers.
3: The it it is a it, it it in part because I've been thinking about the presidency so much for the last year. It is the exact opposite of the theater review part. Now, the presidency requires both playing theater, but it also requires playing the inside game. What is the inside game? Part of what the Democratic debate about is about right now is what does the inside game look like? Joe Biden says the inside game is the game in the Senate. I know how to negotiate. I can get people who are on the other side to work with me. Many people, including his former boss, Barack Obama, would say that system is broken. The partisanship is too calcified. No Republican senator can cross the aisle because they'll get a primary and Fox News will kill them operating then in the world as it is and not the world as you'd like it to be you need to be able to use the administrative state to achieve goals that democrats have uh, care about in order to do so you need to have a clear understanding of how that works and how to best maximize it and ezra klein makes the case incredibly well for elizabeth warren knowing better than perhaps any president maybe since hoover a lot of good it did him but um, how the administrative state works and how, if you care about the balance of power system, you, this should horrify you. But nevertheless, if you if you want to get something done, somebody who knows how to use the administrative state to get those things done at the executive level without having to bother with Congress, um, that Elizabeth Warren has the temperament, the skills, the focus um, is really basically tailor-made for that job um and it's a really it's a really interesting argument to make um and he makes it very well
2: one more thing before we go i was looking back at my interview notes from talking to warren when i was profiling her last spring and i asked her at one point like is there any upside to running as a woman right now and the first thing she said was it is what it is in this kind of like matter of fact way And then she said, oh, yeah, of course there's an upside. It's all those girls who I get to pinky promise with and say this is what women do. They run for president. I think she genuinely, like, that is a real sense of inspiration she has, both in receiving it from the girls who she um, sees on the campaign trail and also in providing it. It's just in some ways she is such a good person to have in this role because I think for her whole career, she kind of surmounted barriers that women face without a whole lot of fuss. And there's something to me that's just a little surprising and odd that she's now confronting this issue in such a public way. I think she was like avoiding making it an issue. And now it seems a little bit like right before the voting, she realized in some way she was going to have to address this. And now it's sort of upon us. And I guess I just kind of wish it wasn't.
0: Even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.
4: Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Hope to see you there.
1: Okay, moving on. Emily, there is a showdown developing between Bill Barr, the attorney general, and his Department of Justice, or our Department of Justice, I should say, not his Department of Justice, and Apple over access to phones owned by a shooter and a, a shooting at Pensacola Naval Air Station, where a Saudi national who was stationed at this air station He was a cadet three people.
2: training with the American military
1: murdered three people, was then himself killed in an assault recently in late 2019. So what is this showdown about?
2: So the government has the phone of the shooter, says it can't figure out how to break the encryption and get in, wants Apple to do it. And Bill Barr, the attorney general, has used this to make a big kind of public stand against Apple and to call for help in this case and also for compliance with helping the government in other cases. I feel like this is one of those things where when you just think about the single instance You come up with a different answer than when you take a step back. So if you're just thinking, like, should the government be able to read this guy's phone? They say they can't do it. They have a warrant. Why shouldn't Apple help? It seems like, okay, fine. But then if you think about it for two more minutes, what Apple is saying is if we provide the government help breaking into this phone, that means we can do it for other phones. That weakens the security system for all phones. And so you might, first of all, worry about the government seeking access to lots of phones. Do we really trust the Justice Department or law enforcement generally with that kind of power? And second, do we want to worry about weakening the privacy settings and security encryption services on devices generally by creating these kinds of backdoor keys? One thing I wonder about and I wonder how you guys feel is that I feel like these are both not entities I trust a whole lot. Like government law enforcement, you worry about their overbearing surveillance desires. But then on the other hand, we have Apple, big tech in general, saying that they know best. And I feel like I've become very skeptical of their assurances on that score as well. And I wonder how this affects how you guys see this um, issue.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. When you say
3: they know best, Emily, tell me exactly what you mean, because wouldn't the Apple position be We don't know best other than we know that the person, you know, individual freedom, individual privacy is a principle we stand behind and we don't want to get in. We don't want to kind of pretend we know best, but we know that at least one big thing and everything, you know, and and we're making that one big decision, but we're not going to try and manage every other little decision which seems different than the than what doj is saying which is we have a system and a process to make sure we don't go over the line here um uh so i it feels maybe a little different between what the two of them are doing which isn't to undermine your general pro- proposition which is this is in the hands of two people who, or two institutions that have um their own interests which are maybe different than the public good well i
1: mean It is clear that the interests of Apple and the interests of the U.S. government are not necessarily interests of any individual person, the interests of society as a whole. Um, That said, Apple does appear to be abiding by its legal obligation. So it's provided access to the things it says it can provide access to. Uh, It's, you know, complying with warrants. It says it can And I think Apple's position, as I understand it, is we do not have the capacity to break the encryption on this phone. We have not built the capacity to break the encryption on this phone. Now, they know how to build that capacity, but they haven't done it. And so it's almost like a compelled speech issue, which is that can the U.S. Department of Justice compel Apple to develop, to write, to create speech, to create a program to crack its own phones? Can they be forced to speak and I would say, no, that's a, like a pretty clear First Amendment case. You cannot be compelled to say things, to do things, to do work that you don't want to do. If Congress wants to pass a law saying in the future, you cannot develop a phone that is not decryptable, that any phone has to have a back door, Congress can do it. That can be fought out, fought in the courts. But I don't think as a matter of just sort of the Department of Justice today ordering Apple to do something or asking Apple to do something carries the, that weight. It is not – we have not legislated – Congress saying every phone has to be decryptable. We've not had that discussion. Apple has gone ahead and developed something because Apple believed it's in the public interest, and Apple is saying, like, you wanna you wanna decrypt it, find a way on your own. It's that's your problem. It's not our problem. We've we're providing a service. And if if Congress and the Supreme Court and the President want to change that, then they can try to pass a law that changes it. But I don't think that that given the sort of landscape of law we have today, that Apple has any obligation. In fact, I think it would be against I think it would it would be a, it would be wrong for them to be forced to have to open this phone, even though it might well help in this investigation. Although I also don't even think it would help in this investigation. Like the guy is he's dead. The crime was committed. They will some investigate. There's some investigatory gain, perhaps, to seeing what's on this phone that they are not able to get access to through other sources, but. When you go back and look at a lot of these kinds of cases, so much of what you can discover, so much of what you need to do is really just human intelligence. It's different kinds of – it's work that you can, you can get access to a lot of that information through other means other than the, the kind of specific violation that the government's asking to commit at that moment. So I also don't even believe the government when they say this is the only way they can get access to the information they need.
2: Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I mean, in addition to that, there are these two companies that have helped the government break into Apple phones previously, and it's not clear, like, why that didn't work this time, and the suspect, the shooter... Shot one of the phones. Maybe that's why they can't get into it. It does seem like Barr may have kind of confected this as a way to rant against Apple. And I do wonder, because I feel deeply cynical about Barr and about Apple, if both sides are kind of using this for their own political purposes. Like this allows Bill Barr to rant against a technology company, and then Apple gets to be the great protector of privacy. I mean, this is a kind of niche that Apple has carved out for itself, different from Facebook and Google, claiming to be really protective. So if you want to take the cynical view, there's a lot of, like, posturing going on here. I guess one thing, David, when you imagine Congress potentially legislating to make it, you know, like, illegal to have a phone that— is truly encrypted. I mean, just posing it that way, I think, demonstrates what folly that would be. Like, then it's black market that you have, a, like, everyone would want that phone anyway. It just, we're not going to have that piece of legislation, which I think proves your point.
1: Right. And I, I want a couple other points on this, which is, so one of the claims made by the people who do say that there should be these backdoors into, uh, into phones and other encryption is that, well, the government will keep it safe, we'll have procedures, it'll be locked down. And we just know that that's so unlikely. What we've seen in the last decade or two decades is massive data breaches. And things like that NSA, the the NSA's own hacking tool, which is supposed to be so closely guarded, gets released in the wild and, and causes mayhem all over the world. And, and the, the idea that you can then trust if, if this technology is developed, you can trust that it's not going to fall into the wrong hands. is It's just Folly, and especially if you think like, if if this is something which the U.S. government demands access to, but that that would affect phones that are sold in China, you know that there would be the Chinese. There'd be a massive Chinese espionage effort to get access to that that uh, that program as well. So I just it, it's so hard to think that this is a protectable activity. Um, I mean, you want to say, like, there should be no safe encryption in the world. Okay, we can try to say there should be no safe encryption in the world, but technology is not moving in that direction, and that's a bad position for the U.S. government to hold.
3: You know, what I also wonder is is – impossible to know, but the Trump Justice Department is making this case uh, that they'll know when to do the right thing and not the wrong thing in this case. But the president (laughs) – Was was elected. (laughs) Well, (laughs) separate apart from the reason that may have caused your uh, your exclamation, the president was elected and has governed on the idea that basically the intelligence agencies don't know what they're doing. The Justice Department is wrong. All the time and what it does, that the FISA court that and, and then in the course of the Russia investigation, the president's defenders have, and now with some with some merit, proved it's been proved that the FISA court that was overseeing the um the investigations into Carter Page and others operates, you know, can be manipulated by the FBI. And so what I wonder is the ability, basically the the, the way in which the president and his administration have, undermined for three years the foundation of the thing they're trying now to build their argument uh, uh, with Apple on. Um, So they've worked at their basically cross purposes. And if that's had any effect.
2: Those are great questions.
1: (laughs) Uh, I want to end this with a totally legit ghoulish question. It's an actual ghoulish question that I have, um, which I hope one of our listeners will answer for me. So one of the Devices had a fingerprint, uh, a, could it be opened with a fingerprint? I mean, we all have those on our phones, uh, or many of us do. The They have the body of the killer. Like, why can't they just take his body and stick his fingerprint on it and open the phone with that? Why Why can't they do that? I would have thought that would be just open and shut. Just grab the finger. Oh my Emily's God. contemplating. Did they already
2: bury him? Maybe they don't have the body anymore. I don't know. Exhume it. Huh. That's a good question. All right. Let's leave that to our listeners. Jocelyn I don't know is saying about it has to be warm. I don't think the y- you could heat up pads. the finger then.
1: <laughs> I, can someone please answer this question? It's an invitation. Tweet the, Tweet to us at at or Facebook.com slash gabfest. Give us an answer. Let us go on to cocktail chatter. <laughs> when you're thinking, when you're having a ghoulish, a ghoulish thought, there is, this, there is a cocktail, in fact, called the Sour Toe Cocktail, which this calls to mind, which is a cocktail at a bar in Canada. I know, because we've written about it in Atlas Obscura, which is uh it's you have the cocktail, but in the bottom of the glass is a amputated toe. And you drink the cocktail. You do not eat the toe. Wait,
2: what? No.
1: There's, yeah, it's called a no. sour toe cocktail. You <gasps> drink it and you the toe the amputated toe touches your lips and then you, you're you done with it. And then the what? the toe is served to the next person. A
2: toe of what?
1: A pume toe. No. People, send in, this. This people, so, send, do, people send in their toes. This is so
3: toes. People send in their toes.
1: They do. Absolutely. And what the reason they have people send in their toes is that people occasionally accidentally swallow or maybe intentionally swallow the toe that's in the cocktail. So they need to replenish it. I'm not kidding. This is not <laughs> bullshit. This is 100% true. The sour toe cocktail. <laughs> Emily. Emily's overcome. Emily's absolutely I, to, I
2: feel like we need to drop the mic and leave. Like that was so much I know more riveting than any that cocktail is, chatter anyone is going to come up is, with. It's actually no, about no. a cocktail.
3: I'm not even sure we should do a cocktail chatter next I week. I know. That's like, so let's just
2: forget it. The blast week. radius
3: <laughs> The blast radius of the toe cocktail is reaches me all the way down here in St. Petersburg. What the hell do you mean people send in their toes? What do you print the UPS packing label to send your toe to Shorty's Bar? And what else do people <laughs> send
1: in? Yeah. it's a, What it's happens? A, a, like you Dawson, lose your toe in an accident
2: in the, and you Google like who needs a spare toe? Like what?
1: It's in the Yukon Territory in Dawson, Dawson City. The first toe is said to have belonged to a miner named Louis Lycan who had his frostbitten appendage amputated in the 1920s, he preserved it in a jar of alcohol. And in 1973, a Yukon local found the jar containing the toe while cleaning a cabin. He brought the toe to the sourdough saloon and started putting it into drinks. Thus, the sourdough Toe Cocktail Club was formed. The original toe lasted seven years because in 1980, someone swallowed it. Since then, seven more toes have been donated to the bar, <laughs> toe number two was given after an amputation due to an inoperable corn. Oh my god! Toe number this three came from a victim really of frostbite. My toe number three was also anymore. toe number three was also accidentally swallowed. <laughs>
3: we are going to need a headlamp to get out of this conversation. I what cannot in imagine God's what name this drink we looks like to...
2: that anyone would put it anywhere near their face. Not toe to number eight their arrived.
1: Mouth. Toe number eight arrived in a jar of alcohol with the message: "Don't wear open-toe sandals while mowing the lawn." Oh my god.
0: <laughs> Oh.
3: <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! So, that Wait, means the talking? person who did was mowing their talk- lawn uh, sorry. had this in their consciousness. The person who was mowing their lawn had this sufficiently forward in their consciousness that when the moment happened, they quick like a bunny did, did what was necessary to preserve the toe for the purposes of sending it to the damn cocktail. This is—we are screwed as a species.
1: I actually find it very heartening myself. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you
3: have a very weird toe fetish.
1: Go go to uh, go to Atlas Obscura and look up the sour toe cocktail. Um John, do you have an actual chatter? Oh
3: my god. No, I I I refuse to you on refuse the grounds to that it will seem pewdy by result. No, I just, you know, everybody the last decade was the hottest decade on record, just so you know. Um and and it could very well have been the the warmest period since the dawn of civilization. They can't can't tell because um, figuring ancient global temperatures from tree rings and ice cores and other things that they it's not precise. But I'm um, I mean, one of the things that just uh, I, I mean. This is you know this evidence like this comes out every week, Um, but having just gone to Venice and done that story about sea level rise um, and talking to geoscientists about the even if you do everything right today which we're not doing the sea level rise wouldn't plateau till the middle of next century, Um, and so uh, it's just uh, you know a huge problem where where we which isn't even really. it discussed much in, the in, for example, this presidential campaign, um, and uh, I just thought I would note that in my cocktail chatter, which is
1: not as entertaining as yours. That wasn't even my cocktail chatter. That was just me noting. The it wasn't it. even his oh, cocktail yeah. chatter. It was, That's it was the me introducing oh, the cocktail God. chatter just because I was thinking about digits and, like, using digits for – amputated digits for, for other purposes. Uh, Emily, do you have a cocktail chatter that is either about a cocktail or about an amputated digit?
2: No. And I feel like I also went in the direction of like big weighty topic and now I'm just going to go for it because I so don't want to compete with you. Uh, there's this crazy to me story in the Washington Post this week about how Uh, you are now allowed to give more than half a million dollars each to support the reelection of Donald Trump the figure in the piece is $580,000. That's the amount a single donor can give to the Republican National Committee that will go to fund Trump's reelection. You could actually give as much as $1.6 million um, over the course of the four-year election cycle. And this is like, has to do with, um, you know, it goes back to Citizens United, although it's really a D.C. Circuit decision from 2014 that took Citizens United one step further. And, it's just amazing that we still have this like supposed maximum of $5,600 that an individual can give to one person's campaign. But through the national parties, through the PACs they set up, you can just get more than 100 times higher than that as a single donor. And I just feel like this is so much of what is wrong with American politics right now and seeing it in those um, incredibly high numbers just really jumped out at me.
1: Um, I have an actual chatter, which I'll do super briefly. <laughs> also, also serious. I really wasn't planning to talk about the sour toe cocktail. It just came up. Uh, just want to refer people to an excellent piece in Emily's own New York Times called Who Controls Trump's Environmental Policy? Among 20 of the most powerful people in government environment jobs, most have ties to the fossil fuel industry or fought against the regulations they're now supposed to enforce. It's it's really interesting. It's just photos and descriptions of the 20 most powerful people in environmental policy. And it's amazing. It's a murderer's row of people whose previous jobs was literally opposing the mission of the department or the agency or the division they're now overseeing. You literally – like if you've gone out and looked for the person who would be most opposed to doing the thing this agency is supposed to do, they have found that person and put them in charge of it. It's, it's astonishing. And going to this point that is in, uh, that, that um, Elizabeth Warren makes, it is in the Ezra Klein piece that John talked about, that personnel is policy that we have – I think when we look back on the Trump presidency – one of the things that will be evident is that environmental policy was one of the most effective areas of change because it was where he and the conservative movement aligned. And he really put in people who have have very aggressively changed how we think about environmental policy, environmental law, environmental regulations in a way that, that it puts it in a funhouse mirror. It's exactly the opposite of what it used to be. So check out this Times story. We also have great Listener chatters, as ever, tweet your listener chatter to us at at SlateGabFest. And this week, um, Paul Hybean, at P. Hybean, sends over this very nice story in the Atlantic headline, The Boys Who Wear Shorts All Winter, and it's about uh, why there is this category of boys, mostly teenagers, young teenagers, who wear shorts through the coldest months of the year in cold states. And tries to explain why they might do it. And it's, it's a very charming story. And as somebody who, when I went to school in England, which is not the coldest climate in the world, but it would get sub-freezing as a, when you're below a certain age, when you're below 11 years old at a lot of British schools, you wear shorts as part of your uniform all through the year. So I used to wear shorts every day of the year to school. And it was funny to wear shorts every day. Like when it was snowing out, you'd be wearing shorts. But it wasn't, it wasn't particularly bothersome. I, I think I could wear shorts every day. I think that'd be okay.
2: I knew people who did that in college, and I thought it was weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it is a little weird. I bet I bet people at UVA wear it, do it. Yeah, it's weird.
2: <laughs> John disapproves. Uh, Bad sartorial uh, choice.
1: Um, if they were if they were well tailored shorts, John might have a like a slight slight sympathy for it, but probably eh. not. Probably not. That is our show for today. The Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, who is here with me in Washington. She's giving a big up sign through the glass. Hello, Joss. It's nice to have you in town. And our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, who's not here. He's in Chicago. Uh, who helped who? Bridget Donovan
3: down here uh, at Pointer helped me. Um, we have uh, two. Bridget it's was, a two Bridget
1: show. Bridget Donovan oh yeah. no, it's and a, Bridget it's a,
3: We got a double, a double Bridget. Um, and also um, Jesse Navarro uh, helped as well. So thanks to them both. And Ryan McAvoy.
2: And Ryan McAvoy is here with me. Yes, thank you, Ryan.
1: Follow us on Twitter at, at @slate_gabfest. Tweet your chatter to us. There for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Um, so we're we're late to this game. We're late to I'm like to a this.
2: century late to this game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> arguably, arguably 254 years late um, or however many years since, since 1776 how many years is it? 244 years um, so the flight of the Sussexes from the UK uh, has been the big story in, in uh, Brexit-tard Great Britain, United Kingdom recently uh, you have Prince Harry and Meghan Markle I don't know what her name is now Megan Sussex? They just know.
2: get called Harry and Megan. I don't think they have a last name exactly. Really? Like when you said the Sussexes, I don't even think that's correct. Huh. Anyway, continue on.
1: Windsor? wrong. He's a Windsor? Isn't he a Windsor? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Tell us. Tell They're us royals. royals. That's all name? you need to know. They're royals. So uh, they have decided to, uh, in some fashion, step back from their responsibilities and to move where they live, possibly to split their time between the U, uh, UK and Canada, possibly just Canada, possibly they're going to go to the sour toe cocktail bar and just live there and drink sour toe cocktails all day long. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's not this is not a super political story, but there are political elements to it. Um, I have various thoughts, but I'm, I'm going to throw to one of you. Do any of you have anything you want to start saying that is that is uh, relevant to this?
2: I have two things to say. One is utterly trivial and one is perhaps more substantive. My trivial comment is that their residence in Britain is called Frogmore Cottage, and that is just such a delightful name. And the picture of it is great. I don't want to get into the millions of dollars spent on the renovations, but if I got to live in a place that looked like that called Frogmore Cottage, I think it would be hard to leave.
1: Is it like the, those cottages in Newport? It's not Rhode a Island? cottage. Which, it's like a big yeah, which house. Are, where it's a mansions. Yeah. yeah,
2: it's exactly yeah. like a cottage on the beach. And, Wasn't Frogmore is
1: Cottage, in and, isn't that and wind okay. in the willows, I feel like Frogmore Cottage is probably the name of the house. in wind in the willows,
2: maybe on a march. If you were arrested at note.
1: Frogmore, you'd be what? Fro- you'd be frog marched. Never mind.
3: You'd be frog marched out of Frogmore.
2: <laughs> on a more substantive, and if you were running a political campaign... all right. Are you still? Gonna- <laughs> Never
1: mind. Am I mind, stepping on ahead. your
2: your pun like four times in a row? Do you want to keep going?
1: Yeah, just just finish it. No, John. no. And if, you were, right. no, campaign, no. if you were running a political campaign, if you were running a political campaign, just finish it.
3: If you were running a political campaign to have more incarcerations of people who lived in Frogmore, you'd call for more frog marching out of Frogmore. That was
1: bad. That was bad. The frog marching was good. The frog... I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> oh, my God.
2: Um, all right. On to my substantive point, which everyone's so eager to hear.
1: GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today